Hello, it is Matt Weave with BibleTruthProject.com here with another episode, and um, today I'm going to be speaking about uh, something I was running across. I was actually reading a book, or listening to a book, rather, that kind of piqued my interest. So uh, we've been studying some prophecy, just a group of us from church, and uh, it's been interesting to kind of just see the different things, even for myself, uh, to kind of get different perspectives and hear different people's ideas. And it also has made me dig into sources and uh, just gain deeper understanding from what I've had before. But one of the books I was list, uh, listening to or slash reading is The End Times uh, by the Ancient Church Fathers by Ken Johnson. He's a, T, a THD. And it basically goes over uh, Ephraim the Syrian, Irenaeus, and Hippolytus. And uh, these, of course, are early church fathers uh, who spoke about the end times and the last days. And uh, it's interesting because... Uh, one of the things that was, I mean, obviously there's a lot of controversy and speculation that goes on in prophecy because, you know, we, we try to figure out, you know, what's going to happen. And this, of course, leads to, you know, endless speculation. And we've covered some of that stuff in other episodes. So I'm not going to just bore you to tears by repeating things. But it's really, you know, it comes down to some very key theories. You know, is there fulfillment uh, found 70 AD, I mean, there's a post on Facebook, somebody responded, yeah, you know, 70 AD, that's when, you know, the Olivet Discourse was fulfilled, obviously, that's somebody who believes in preterism, and uh, it, it's like, you know, don't, you don't have the time or energy to get into it with uh, people who hold to those views, um, I once kind of entertained the thought of preterism, just because, I, I guess the reason that people adopt these types of uh, systems as well as I had is because you're looking for answers. You know, you're, you're looking at what the scripture says and you see it's not been fulfilled. So now, now you look for other answers. Well, could it have been fulfilled a different way? And, um, you know, look at the Olivet Discourse. There's no question, like, I was kind of in the camp of there's no question that some of it seems to have been past tense. But when you understand the greater context and you read all the, the you know, read the read Daniel and really grab, grapple with it and all of a sudden you start to see, no, no, this isn't partial. This isn't partially. It's kind of an all or nothing kind of a thing. And, um, you know, with the issue with preterism is, you know, the Olivet Discourse ultimately leads to the return of Jesus. He, you know, he doesn't give you part of the puzzle and then says, wait for 2,000 years and I'll come back. And uh, so that's why, you know, you come up with a system which says, well, it was all fulfilled and there's just this realization of the fullness. You know, Jesus was the, the fulfillment of the hope of Israel, that, that sort of, sort of, sorts of things. The problem is that's not what the apostles held to. That's not their expectations. That's also not Jesus' teaching. This is simply later people trying to uh, wrestle with and understand um, you know, apply, if you will, biblical prophecy to their generation. Um, for instance, just 100 years ago, or now 120 years ago, a big deal in prophecy was um, what we would kind of call victorious theology or this, you know, post-millennial theology where, you know, we will swallow up the world in victory and we will, you know, we will bring the kingdom of God to earth by uh, revival. So you have these massive revival movements and this revival, 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 revival. And that was really driven by the eschatology that we will usher in the kingdom 
by what we do in the in the world. But when you couple that with John three, the kingdom of God is not flesh and blood. It is born of water and spirit. It is born spiritually. It is born by the spirit of God. It has nothing to do with human effort. All of a sudden, we recognize that it's God who pulls the strings, and it's God who makes things happen. Uh, sure, he partners with us, but it's coming from above. It's not from the bottom up. It's from the top down. So why do I say all that? Well, the early church fathers had opinions on eschatology in the last days, and um, it's interesting to hear their views on it. Of course, I had studied Irenaeus before and um, had read some of Tertullian's. I just didn't mess a lot with uh, uh, Ephraim's work, Ephraim of Syria. And um, it's interesting kind of some of the things that he speaks about. He views basically, I mean, he lives obviously in this kind of that first generation after uh, the apostles, and he obviously probably had some information and access to information that we don't we don't have today. But he held to the view that the anti Messiah would be a Jew and would come from Bashan and would be of the tribe of Dan. And he had reasons for that, probably sketchy reasons. I know a lot of the modern people don't want to go with that. But I think it's actually quite important for us to at least look at that scenario and understand what's going on and why they would have thought that. You know, today it's not popular. Today it's not popular to, um, to, to hold to a Jewish messianic uh, anti-Messiah. We have far easier... Um, how would you say there's far easier targets to to look at for you know enemies of Christianity kind of a thing, but I do feel a lot of that is just influenced with supersessionism and um, doesn't really retain the Jew the Jew centric or the Jewish centric narrative of Scripture that I think the Bible indicates and that God indicates. I don't think that God anywhere stated that he's finished with Israel, that he's, that he's finished with them, and that you know the, we call the bride of Messiah um, centrally has always been Israel and is still Israel. It hasn't been superseded by, by an organization. It has been, uh, obviously, those who are invited are, are those uh, Jew and Gentile. Um, who are part of the assembly. I know some people are a little weird when I say that, but I think it's an important distinction because it's not this replacement of Israel. That is just a concept that has come about people who have no loyalty to Jews um, throughout church history, etc. But that's kind of off subject. But basically, coming back to, okay, this is the Jewish narrative, Jewish family, Jewish story, and it ultimately is going to lead to uh, a contest that's going to be for the messiahship of the nation. That's how I understand the return. And that is a very important part of understanding eschatology. So if you look at, for instance, the Genesis 3.15, I believe, where the whole serpent uh, issue, I just want to say it's 3.15. Yes. I'll put on animosity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he will crush your head and you will crush his heel. You have the ultimate um, conflict that's going to take place is between the seeds here. So in other words, you know, I don't understand the, 
Genesis very well in the sense that, okay, so you God creates paradise, it's gorgeous, it's beautiful, he puts man that he created from the earth, puts him into paradise, he's there in a paradise, and all of a sudden the serpent gets the idea to deceive the woman. I don't, I don't understand that. I don't understand that dynamic. I don't know why the serpent had his eyes on humanity and wanting to deceive that. Okay, now in Genesis or in Revelation, we get a little bit of a picture of the dragon, um, you know, going after the woman, um, which is obviously Israel, the twelve stars on her head, uh, giving birth to the child. So there's that image of he's wanting to swallow up whoever is going to overcome him. But I was thinking about it today, and I kind of likened it a little bit to a chess game. You know, in chess, you have the white, you know, the white set and the black set, and the the board, if you will, are you know, you're moving around pieces, and the most precious object on the game or on the board is the king, and they clash, and they have different powers and different effects, and have different you know different abilities. And the people behind the game, the powers behind the game, is making the decisions of the moves. You know, you can liken the white set, if you will, controlled by God. You know, who is the king that's in play? Who is the king of the world? Um, it's Jesus, okay? He's going to be the king of kings. And who is the, the queen that's right beside him? You know, that's his, that's, his, uh, that's his people, okay? It's his bride. Now, you go on the flip side of the table, you know, who is the ultimate king, human, enemy of uh, the, the real king of the world? Well, Satan's king, if you will. And this is the seed, you know, we'll call him the anti-Messiah. And following him is a false bride, somebody who um, is drunk, if you will, with the, with the blood uh, of the saints and things like that. So... You know, that's really what you've got going on in eschatology. And so this all of the human, human history has been this pawn game that started in Genesis with the, the Nahash, with, with uh, Hillel ben Shachar, we assume, deceiving the woman and causing humanity to fall. And then God and having to enact a divine game in which he will ultimately defeat and reverse the effects of that fall. And that's really the whole narrative of the Bible. It's the whole, whole narrative of the story. So it's, But the secret of this whole thing is that God was going to use someone of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. So it's, it's not a, uh, you know, it's not going to be, it is supernatural, but it's obviously working through the human history and, and a human. So I look at that and I, I think that's, you know, it's very interesting. It's kind of the correlation, if you will, and, and how that this world is being fought over and we're in the middle of a battle. And um, God's joy is to to play this game. And you could say, well, it seems a little weird that God would be playing a game. But I think he honestly, I don't know, he finds probably some kind of a joy from a from a master standpoint, looking out over it, seeing all the pieces come together and the things fall into place like he plans and intends. And at the end, of course, it's going to be checkmate, and that's when the two kings finally clash, and you have the ultimate victor. So we have to identify who this ultimate king will be, who defies him. Well, this is why I say all that, to come back to the point of um, uh, Ephraim, the Syrian, held to the view that this is going to be 
a uh, Jewish individual who is from Bashan, who grows up from Bashan, and uh, he'll be of the tribe of Dan. Now, that piqued my interest because I read a book a couple months ago by Jordan Peterson about the whole Nephilim connection, and he goes into quite detail about you know that whole thing, and it's a very fascinating book. And uh, one of the points that I saw so clearly that he brought out from the Bible is the conflict between the, the fallen angels, which we don't know how many there are. They're probably... We get the idea that there's a third because of the tail of the dragon sweeping a third of the stars, but we don't know that that's the angels. We don't know that. I don't know what that is. Could be just a third of humanity. I, I don't know. I have no idea. But the Genesis 6 fall is clearly a building upon um, the pollution of of the Nahash. I mean, he's the serpent started it, but why, why was he after humans? Why did he care? He was a higher being. He was greater, and all of a sudden he comes down and deceives um, Adam and Eve, who were innocent, who didn't know. They didn't know any better. It's just like a, a baby who's naked. They don't know the difference. They're just innocent, and they are who they are. And all of a sudden they had knowledge and wisdom, and they knew that they were naked. So why did he do that? Now God had to deal with that, and he has to deal with the forces of darkness, plus save the human uh, narrative because he, he wants us. So why do I, you know, where am I going with this? Well, this is where this whole narrative comes up. Now, who is the Antichrist? Okay, we have two versions of the name in the New Testament. You have Anachristos and you have Pseudochristos. Pseudochristos is obviously false messiahs. That's the word Jesus uses. Anachristos is the word uh, that's used in the book of John. But without question, Pseudochristos is... I think a clarifying element. Jesus didn't warn of Anachristos; he warned of Pseudochristos. So we have to recognize we're dealing with a messianic figure, whether or not he's Jewish. We're dealing with a messianic type figure. Now, second layer of it is he Jewish, and I think he is based on Thessalonians, and the they of Thessalonians being the Jewish people who are sold um, the delusion and the lie, unfortunately. But he also goes on to say that it's when the abomination is set up in the temple that there's going to be tremendous famine going across the world and tremendous changes, and God's going to pour out uh, a lot of wrath and different, you know, and different things. And I would hold to that kind of a kind of a concept. I'd say the final wrath were probably taken out before that, just at His coming on the last day, the single great day of the Lord. The day of the Lord can, I think, refer to the time period of God's judgment, which is, you know, a, a 24-hour day, but it can also refer to the season of judgment, which is what we would often call the tribulation, but as Jeremiah calls it, it's the time of Jacob's trouble, which I think is more accurate because it's, it is surrounding the issue of Jacob. If you read uh, Daniel um, 11 and 12, you're dealing with a... Israel-centric conflict and, you know, the nations that you're dealing with are around there. So I think that's important. He draws, obviously draws his attention, whether you believe in an Islamic Antichrist or you believe in a Jewish one, it's, cent it's centered in Israel uh, without question. So, but now why is that important? Well, I'm trying to find the verse here. Let me just find it where Jacob blesses his sons. And this is where, uh, let me 
me see here. This is where he blesses his sons. I'm just trying to find it here. Death of Rachel and Isaac. Okay, 36. Skipping forward here. Sorry. Should have had this stuff ready before the podcast. Here we go. Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Judah, obviously. He makes that prophecy that the scepter will not pass from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until whom it belongs to will come. He will, to him will be the obedience of the people. We obviously believe that as being Jesus, Yeshua. Let's just keep going. Joseph, Benjamin. Trying to just find Dan. There we go. So this is something that is, I, I don't know what to make of this. He, he quotes this, but Dan will judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Let Dan be a serpent beside the road, a viper beside a path. And this is this heel situation, okay? So it says he will bruise your heel. So let Dan be a serpent beside the road, a viper beside the path, who strike strikes a horse's heel so that its rider falls backwards. For your salvation I wait. You know, that's it's interesting. I mean, that is an interesting phrase. Let Dan be a serpent beside the road, a viper beside a path, who strikes a horse's heel so that its rider falls backwards. Well, who is riding the, the white horse at the end? Okay. Messiah, right? Yeshua, Jesus. So he uses that. Um, Ephraim of Syria uses that as saying, well, he is from Dan. And it could be. And if you look at Revelation, interestingly enough, of those sealed, uh, Dan is absent. Uh, all the other tribes are there and Dan's not there. So some people speculate and say, well, it has to do with that. And that could easily be, I I don't know. I would kind of understand. So as I understand it, you know, Bashan, is, it's a very spiritually active place. In the Bible, Bashan is um, where, I mean, for instance, let's just go back to the beginning. Bashan means the place of the serpent, number one. Secondly, Mount Hermon is right on the edge of the Bashan. And that is the place where, according to First Enoch, that the watchers fell from heaven. And then secondly, you have um, connections, especially when Jesus, or uh, not Jesus, well, it's describing Jesus, but David describes the bulls of Bashan and uh, circling him and encompassing about. And the bulls of Bashan, as the Bible calls it, are what, what in Genesis 6 are called giants, okay? And this is roughly an equivalent to the Greek titans. And, uh, you know, the cosmology, just to make a very complicated thing, really short. You know, basically all mythology started in Sumer, in uh, ancient, basically, Ur, if you will. And um, it became, you know, the Sumerian mythology became the Babylonian mythology, which became the Canaanite mythology, the Ugaritic mythology, and the, eventually the Greek mythology and the Roman mythology. The rest is history. They all share very similar aspects to their stories. 
And it's basically this whole gods being messed up, if you will, fighting each other and humans getting caught in the middle of it. The Bible stands separate in that it is much clearer and much more defined, makes a lot more sense. That is very hard to understand, kind of weird and whatever. It's out there language oftentimes. But it does describe... It does describe the commingling of humans and supposed gods, if you will, and there's offspring being genetic, uh, genetically modified. I mean, we, we live in a day and age today with CRISPR technology where people can genetically modify plants and animals, and that's all technically possible again today. And let's just step back in time, you know, into a day and age when that type of technology would have been readily available. And, uh, or not, shouldn't say ready but available, but I mean, angels obviously are a lot smarter than humans and they would have known about some of this stuff and they could have obviously modified and created a, I hate to use this word, but a bastard in creation. And that is a mixture of angel and human. God never created a mixture of angel and human, but when angels fell from their position and mixed with women, you had what we like to call or what the Bible calls, uh, the Nephilim. And, um, you know, that, that's a whole narrative in and of itself. But the connection, I think, is interesting. The, you know, when it's talking about the bulls of Bashan, so later when in, in uh, the Exodus, when Moses comes up, there's King Og of Sion. And uh, let me see, who was the king of Bashan? Both of them are described as being giants, which are... Nephilim. Somehow there was still some Nephilim blood that needed to be taken care of. The same is true of Goliath and his brothers. There was still some Nephilim bloodlines that needed to be dealt with. We don't read about any giants after that uh, situation. If you want more information on that, I highly recommend Jordan Peterson's book. He does an amazing job. He stays within the Bible. He does not use pseudepigrapha. He does not use any outside sources. He doesn't use Second Temple books. He uses strictly strictly the Bible to, to bring out the truth of what happened pre-flood. I think he did a phenomenal job. He's a lawyer. He's very articulate. He's very meticulous. He's not a scholar but in the traditional definition, but he does do tremendous amount of study and research. I think it's worth reading personally. But regardless, you know, it kind of makes sense to me because what you have is um, what you have is basically in the beginning, the first corruption of humans led to what the Greeks call Titans. And in Revelation, when it's talking about the guy, the bad dude, okay, who's very sneaky, he's very intelligent, he's a tremendous warrior who can make war with him. He suffers a fatal wound, yet the fatal wound doesn't hurt him. So somehow he's more than human, I guess you could use this term. Like, I mean, he appears to die and come back to life, whatever that means. And, uh, and then you have this whole numeral aspect when, when uh, John uses the term uh, 666. And there's a lot of different things I've heard, I think, in the, you know, it's some... However it works, some people say it's, you know, Nero. Um, it can also kind of equivalent, make an equivalent to Titan. Um, I think it's Irenaeus that makes the connection and calls it Titan. Um, calls it possibly a Titan. That's one of the words you could you could use. I think, um, I think, I think this Ephraim guy, 
makes that connection as well. Now, why is that interesting? Because if it is a Nephilim, is if it is a Titan that is produced, a giant, um, and it's giants not necessarily in stature, but just in wisdom and just nobody can compete with them. Um, it makes a lot more sense why he gets away with what he gets away with. It's very hard for any human in today's day and age to be able to um, lead in the way that Daniel 11 describes in that sense. It just seems too weird, but there has to be more at play. And it kind of makes sense to me when I think about that because um, just the whole story. So, you know, Genesis starts there. You have the, the place of the serpent, the Bashan. You have the prophetic implication of the bulls of Bashan have compassed me about, you know, the whole conflict of what was happening in the unseen realm, if you will, when Jesus died and resurrected. And then the final conflict being again between um, Israel, if you will, and a Titan, which is, I mean, I mean, that's what Israel dealt with. When they came up from the Exodus, the, the whole principle of the Exodus was to wipe out these clans of giants. I mean, if you notice the 12 spies, they didn't come back and say, well, there's a lot of Philistines. They came back and said, there's giants in this land. And we're like grasshoppers compared to them. That was the thing that scared them. They were like, we can't make war with these things. I mean, we, we're not going to win. That was their terrifying observation. That's what God did not allow them to go into the land because he wanted them to overcome these giants and these Nephilim. And that plays right back to, you know, in Genesis, the solution is going to be a man and he's going to evaporate this. Now, I'm not saying Antichrist is going to be that because personally, because I don't know that that's the case. It could be. I mean, it would make sense to me. I'm only presenting it because I think it's an interesting uh, thing that in the early church, they held to a similar view. You know, they held to kind of something of the same line of reasoning to what I just presented. And uh, I don't think that should be ignored. I don't think we should just dismiss it. I'm not going to say I believe everything that the, the early church, especially Irenaeus and, you know, those guys, Eusebius, and those, I mean, not everything they wrote was spot on. So I'm not going to take everything literal. Of course, I'm going to do my due diligence and listen to it. And, um, you know, and, and again, I'll come back and um, make a statement too that if it ends up being an Islamic Antichrist, it, so be it, then it is. You know, if that's what fulfills the scripture, that's great. And even if it's a revived Roman Empire and that's what fulfills the scripture, that's great. I mean, that's what most of the early church held to. Obviously, Rome was a superpower that nobody could deal with back then. And they prophesied, you know, or not prophesied, they looked at it as, you know, Rome is going to be this beast that's going to be destroyed. And uh, the last beast with ten heads and all that good stuff. But... You know, so and then that didn't pan out. So you have to kind of adjust your theories as time went on, and everybody, every generation applied it to their scenario. And obviously, I think the most, if we just look at it face value, the most logical scenario in our current world situation seems to be the Islamic view. But I just don't think we're quite there yet. Most of the early church held to the understanding that Jesus would come back um, around six thousand years. Um, 4,000 years, or how was it? Yeah, six, one total of 6,000 years. So they predicted 2,000 years of absence, and then he would return in time for the seventh millennium. 
And I don't know, is that true or not? That's what they held to. I would, I would see the value in knowing that. I mean, technically, I think we're in 5778 or something like that now. Or maybe it's 5779 on the Jewish calendar. So, you know, we would be a couple hundred years away. And so a lot can change in a couple hundred years. You know, in a couple hundred years, let's say it's in the next 250 years. And I'm not saying that. I'm just, what if it is? A lot can change in 250 years. If you go back 250 years, that's about the time America's been a nation. So look at how the world has changed in the last 250 years. Now you fast forward another 250 years, the world could be completely different. And um, we have to be aware of that. You know, I think a lot of people make the mistake of shoehorning their generation into the prophecies rather than let the prophecies be the prophecies. And let... Uh, let them play out. When we see the signs happening, it's not going to be like, oh, wow, this is very vague. No, it's going to be very clear. There will be fruit on the tree. <laughs> you know, there'll be fruit on the tree, and we'll know that there's the seasons here. We'll see the sign. I mean, the temple needs to be built. There needs to be all that happening. So, so when we see these things happen, I mean, Jesus does point to that sign as being definitive regardless of revived roman empire islamic or jewish uh anti-messiah it just it doesn't matter the sign is the abomination that is the fruit on the tree and uh, i know a lot of people will say well that's you know that's the you know the current dome of the rock being there and once that thing's gone then you know the end can come but Jesus doesn't really state it that way. He doesn't indicate 2,000 years of the abomination. He says, when you see the sign, that's when you need to run. Don't even wait. Just get out. Because immediately, immediately there's going to be challenges. Now, the parts, I I don't understand the fullness of it. I mean, there's things that don't quite make sense. I mean, you have Jerusalem pictured as being a tremendously wealthy city, so maybe three years Prior to uh, him coming in, maybe it becomes a wealthy city. Well, I guess it's the Babylon, the Great Connection, which some people would say is a different city. And it could be. It could also be Tyre. I mean, we hear the prophecy against the king of Tyre. Um, I, I mean, quite frankly, it could be Tyre at that point. I mean, it's a great port city, whatever. King of the North might be from up to... I don't know. I have no idea. It could also be... Yeah, it could be Mecca. I kind of seem to see that as unlikely uh, just because it's so far away and it's not a port city. But um, I'm just not sure about that. But I think at the very least, I mean, you got to take Tyre seriously as well. I mean, today it's not a big deal. But in the days of that king, he's from the north. Maybe he has that territory. Maybe it becomes a big deal. So there's prophecies against the king of Tyre who is likened as Satan. And uh, talks about the merchandise and all that sort of thing. And you were in Eden and all that great stuff. So, I, I don't know. Those are some of the interesting things. But, you know, what you're dealing with is not allegory. You're not dealing with some mythological, you know, somehow mythological uh, kingdom that's, you know. I mean, look, the kingdom of heaven is as real as the day is long. More real than what we have here. And the king that, kingdom that God will establish on earth will be... As real as the kingdom of heaven and and the kingdom on earth has always been israel historically of course there's no king on israel so but yeah i uh, 
I think that's it for this session. So I hope you learned something and check out those sources. I think uh, the, the books are great if you want to read those books. Um, it's just thought-provoking stuff. You know, some people are like, well, I don't read too many books. It might, you know, just taint your thinking or whatever. To me, I like to hear people's perspectives. The more perspectives I get, the more I'm strengthened in my faith and my views and how I see things. And not that I, not that I'm right. It's just, you know, I'm sensitive and I'm, I'm open to change. Anytime somebody can present me with an argument out of the Bible that makes way more sense and that I'm way off, I'm very happy to change my views. I'm very open about that. And uh, I'm just trying to seek truth. I'm trying to find the truth, and I'm trying to defend uh, the faith that has been alive and well for 2,000 years. So God bless you, and have a great time. Until next time, we will, um, we will do this again hopefully soon. So God bless. <laughs>